Disrupt Radio. Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Oprah Winfrey are some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. What drives them? How did they make it big? And what are they really like behind the scenes? Global Disruptors with me, Rob Little, is a podcast that tells their story and others. Listen now at Disrupt Radio. I'm Rob Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We're the only space company in the world offering space travel to people. We'd like to make it affordable for the masses. Richard Branson, is he a man of the people? One of us? He really wants us to think that he is. That lucrative mythologising has been right at the heart of the Virgin brand since its genesis in late 1960s London. Virgin employees have been enjoined to think that they are part of a family, working in a company that is taking on the big guys, fighting for the ordinary bloke, the consumer. And as customers, we are encouraged to think that by buying a Virgin product, we are getting value for money from a company that goes the extra mile for us, just for us. Most of my friends said I was bonkers to go with a bearded guy who nobody really knew in those days who said he wanted to run an airline and we'd seen the demise of Laker. You know, why was he going to be any more successful? The Virgin Group controls over 400 companies and includes an airline as well as mobile phones, travel agencies, retail stuff and space travel. It's not listed on the stock market and values its financial privacy. But estimates make it worth around 3 billion US dollars. He's also very clever and very determined. For seven decades, he has been smiling enigmatically behind his beard. A hippie made good, all the way to the bank. So how did Sir Richard Branson do it? And what drives him on? We used to call him the mumbling jumper. You couldn't get him to speak a single sentence clearly and succinctly. Virgin had gone from a bunch of guys that I got on with really well who had this like rinky-dink little company into a proper serious company. The Sex Pistols threw Virgin into a kind of vortex of youth culture. He wasn't a good pupil. He was so interested in being an entrepreneur that he didn't take in a great deal of his schooling, I don't think. <laughs> People are quite quick to say, oh, but look at all the businesses he tried and failed. Richard's view is much more, well, just give it a go and find out. One of the most wonderful things about him, even in the darkest days, his cup isn't half full, it's always full. Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic aims to take passengers up into outer space to experience near zero gravity on suborbital flights, and you can reserve a seat by paying $450,000. Typically, for the adventurous Branson, he went on the inaugural flight himself. But space travel is a far cry from Virgin's beginnings in late 1960s hippie London. There was no formality to it. There was no HR department or, you know, it wasn't that kind of thing. We were all hippies. I was a musician uh, who drank. He didn't drink. I think he smoked dope. Uh, like everybody, everybody else in the world smoked dope in those days and some of them drank and smoked dope and some of them didn't. Branson did not quite start with nothing. 
he attended the expensive private school Stowe and left it at 17, with nothing much to show for it except ambition and the beginnings of a magazine for students called, unimaginatively, Student. He ran it out of a dilapidated old house in central London. Tom Newman would later produce Virgin's hugely influential album, Tubular Bells, but in 1969 he was a hippie musician. Richard rented this terraced Regency house in Albion Street. I mean, it's a re- really scruffy house. There were no carpets. You know, it was it was like an empty house that had, had squatters move in. And all of the workers on the student magazine were in the basement, and it was a really Dickensian basement situation. There was a, a cooker and an electric kettle and a fire in an open fireplace and totally disorganised. I don't even think there was a desk. Uh, Richard lived on the top floor, in mainly in bed, and he had a secretary called Mundy Ellis, who lived on the top floor with him, with a typewriter. Richard's secretary, Mundy Ellis, would later manage the Manor Studio and sing backing vocals on Tubular Bells. In the late 60s, student protests against the Vietnam War and campaigns for racial and sexual equality meant that even the magazine's title gave it an aura of credibility for its target readership. He had created the same kind of coffee table magazine as Time Out, so it had the features and functions and what was going on and all that in it, but he aimed it at young people rather than uh, sophisticated Londoners and students particularly, and it was better than Time Out on many levels because it had all sorts of information that was kind of in the dark side of London about where you could go to get abortions, about all all kind of stuff that was actually very, very, very useful to teenagers. Articles giving advice on contraception were controversial and important in the late 60s and early 70s, Student magazine soon attracted wider attention. Get something out tomorrow. First of all, a list of any new records you want on. We hammer out the contents of the next issue between us and somehow put it together. And when the BBC called, Branson jumped at the chance of national TV coverage. But everybody enjoys the lack of routine. The same staff that were here at the beginning still work full time in it. But 18 new people have joined us. Some have given up their formal education, like myself to live and work on the magazine and other ventures. The editorial that was People of Tomorrow from BBC TV, broadcast in 1971. Branson had never wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to be an editor or a, or a journalist. I wasn't really interested in being an entrepreneur, but I soon found I had to become an entrepreneur in order to keep my magazine going. The words of Richard Branson, read by Alex Cobb. Student magazine was a cool job for some, but music-loving schoolboy Steve Lewis wanted a job at Branson's new record company. The Times had an ad which said, record company slash magazine needs young people, easy work, good money. Phoned this number, I phoned the number, I was told to go to an address in Albion Street. So I duly turned up and the door was opened by this guy who looked like a homeless person. It was Nick Powell, who was Richard's partner at the time. And this was before punk, long before punk. This was 1969. I was 16 years old. Nick was wearing a pair of jeans which were held together with safety pins. Long before Malcolm McLaren or anyone else had the idea of doing anything remotely like that, it was a purely practical measure. He had one pair of jeans and the seams had gone. 
And Nick um, pointed to a stack of magazines on the floor called Student. And he said, if you take our magazine into Hyde Park, you can sell them for three shillings and you can keep one and six. This is pre-decimalisation. So it was the equivalent of um, three shillings would have been 15 pence and I could keep half of that. And I said, well, no, I'll come back to the record company job. And Nick said, oh, well, my partner's dealing with that. I said, oh, well, can I please speak to your partner? He's not here. And while I was sitting there, like, loads of people rang the doorbell and, and did. They took a stack of magazines and they went off to Hyde Park, which I thought was really cool. Because, like, how did they know I was going to come back and give them the unsold magazines and the money that I'd taken? I could have, you know, it was a very kind of hippie th- sort of ethos. You know, like, we try, you know, you're one of us, I had long hair. You know, they had long hair. <laughs> it was like, well, you'll be okay. You know, you're going to come back, aren't you? Then eventually Richard came back and the job was answering inquiries. They had a retail mail order business selling records and they advertised it in their own magazine. Steve Lewis's break with the fledgling Virgin led to a stellar career in the music business as Managing Director of Virgin Artists Management, MD of Virgin Music Publishing and later CEO of Chrysalis Music. He immediately realised that Branson and partner Nick Powell had a mail order business selling a product they knew nothing about. He didn't like music. He didn't listen to music. So that, the, the, the real problem was they didn't know about music. They, Nick had been to the States and had seen Tower Records. There was a law in the 60s called resale price maintenance, which had been abolished. And resale price maintenance meant the manufacturer could determine the retail price of their products. And Nick had been to America and seen Tower Records, pile them high, sell them cheap, discounted albums. So he realised this was now possible, even though nobody was doing it in the UK. So we were Virgin with the only people selling records discounted from the manufacturer's price. And they didn't know who was on what label. And so if a record was distributed, for example, by EMI, it was 39.11 retail price. If it was distributed by Warner's, and that was the largest part of the market, those two. It was 40 shillings and eightpence, but they didn't know who was on which label, so they didn't know how much to charge or how much to quote the price as being. So my job interview was basically, they had a bunch of records, and they were like looking at the records and going, okay, what label are the Edgar Broughton band on? And I'd go, Harvest. And I'd go, oh, he knows that. You know, what label are Pink Floyd on? I'd go, EMI. And I, I got enough of the questions right <laughs> to get the job, because I could answer the questions that people were writing, which they didn't know the answers to. Richard Branson and his schoolmate Nick Powell decided to call their new company Virgin, officially because they were innocents in business. But we all get the saucy innuendo, particularly when the record label design was of a young, naked girl. Sex sells. Branson also realised that looking like one of the customers was helpful, and that looking like a businessman wasn't. So it was always open neck shirts, relaxed jumpers, meetings on a funky houseboat, big smiles, leggy models, and glasses of fizz all round. He conveyed the idea that Virgin was fun, and it came along with a healthy dose of anarchic and sometimes dangerous stunts. More of those later. I'm Rod Little, and you're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio. Somebody said, whatever you do, don't go into the office today. The cops are there. Tweaking the nose of authority and bending the rules for Branson are good PR. But back in the early 1970s, he bent them too far and got himself in trouble with the law. Here's Tom Newman again. Richard had come up with this plan. He sent Alan Joyce with the van to EMI's record factory 
where you can get for nothing skips full of imperfect pressings, records, and they're in white cardboard sleeves. And they're literally thrown in the skips. And I had to go down with Richard to Dover to take these records to France. Richard went out with the briefcase into the customs office, got, got a load of stuff signed, came out again, and we went to France. And we drove just in from Calais, chucked all these records out of the van into the ditch and drove back and came back. This went on for, I don't know, maybe six months. But then everything went wrong. Monday told me that Richard's in prison. <laughs> I was actually working in the Oxford Street shop when Customs and Excise turned up and... and braided us. I could tell right away it wasn't one of our customers. These guys were wearing suits for a start. You know, we didn't have customers who wore suits. I phoned, it might have been Nick, and said, these guys are here from Customs and Exercise, and they've told me to close the shop down. And he said, well, you've got to do what they say, Richard's in jail. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll explain it all later, just do what they ask you to do. I was like, crikey. And I was pretty scared. I, you know, never broken the law, didn't want to break the law, didn't, didn't have a any intention of doing anything wrong. I had no idea I was doing anything wrong. I had no idea I was selling records that I shouldn't have been selling. Um, and they then took every single record out uh, of its sleeve, all the records we had in stock, and passed them all under this ultraviolet light that they'd set up. And all the ones that had been sold on the export account had a mark which only showed up under the ultraviolet light and they were putting them in piles. And the pile of <laughs> started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, hmm, this isn't good. The scam was that Virgin was buying records, saying they were for export, and therefore not paying the purchase tax on them. These records were then advertised in student for well under the normal retail price. The office had been sealed off by the police and there was customs officers there as well none of the staff knew what was going on except that Richard was in trouble I was concerned that Richard was in jail otherwise that was my job probably you know? and at the same time I knew Richard would get himself out of it it was like one of those things you just you just believed that Richard was he was always doing things that you thought he couldn't get away with and he always did so you know I had this feeling that he'd get away with it Richard Branson has an aura of success around him even when he struggles and he talks a great game. You don't learn to walk by following rules. You learn by doing and by falling over. Sometimes this positive attitude and salesmanship come back to bite him. In late 2022, it was announced that shareholders in Virgin Galactic were going to sue him, claiming that he had hidden issues within the space programme and sold millions worth of stock at inflated prices. Branson had talked up the stock flotation by claiming, quote, great progress after a test pilot had died in a crash. We'll get, we'll get out there and help try to kickstart the British economy. So um, I, think, I think Great Britain as a whole will do well by Virgin being on the high street. He never seems to doubt that he will end up winning. Chris Moss was the genius behind Virgin Atlantic's marketing in the early days. They had been giving balloon flights to travel agents as a way of promoting the airline. When Pierre Lindstrand, the balloon owner, said he'd always wanted to fly a bigger balloon and take it across the Atlantic, it was Chris who thought risking Richard's life in a dangerous stunt was a good way to publicise the company. I wrote this list down of all the reasons to do it and all the reasons not to do it. And 
The main reasons not to do it well, well might kill Richard, could end up being a disaster. All sorts of things could go wrong. But on the flip side, what a hell of an adventure. What a way to publicise London, New York or London, Boston. And we thought, well, let's talk to Richard. And sure enough, he said, something like flipping heck, we should do it. Um, and that was it. And he never said, said what's it going to cost or what's the budget? But um, we worked our way through all of those. Um, and after we'd had contracts drawn up, the balloon started to, to, to get built. And it was the most amazing sight. A huge monster balloon. It was big enough to put a jumbo jet inside. Before Branson could tackle crossing the Atlantic in Lindstrand's monster balloon, he had to get his ballooning licence under UK law. But he was not a great student. He gets the coordination a bit wrong at times, and um, sometimes you think he hasn't been quite listening, and so we were all a bit nervous. He was going up in this balloon, and going up is fine in a balloon. It's bringing it back down again is the problem, and being able to dump all the hot air. Anyway, he'd... He'd done a number of test flights uh, with another friend of mine uh, who was a, an experienced pilot. And I'd got these phone calls every weekend or so, and there'd be a sort of noise in the background. And he'd say, everything's all right, Chris. I said, what do you mean everything's all right? And he said, well, the balloon's stuck in a tree, but it's all right, we're all safe, it's fine. And the noise I heard was the chainsaws trying to cut this thing out. Or... Another weekend, it was uh, Chris. Just, just to let, just to, just to sort of let you know, and he'd be a bit nervous, stuttering. I said, "Yeah, what's happened now?" And he said, well, "We're on a bakery roof. The fire brigade are coming to collect us. Um, we got becalmed, and we ran out of fuel, so we're on this bakery roof. But it should all be all right. But just to let you know." And these would happen every every few weeks. Branson's 1987 adventure across the Atlantic was due to start on the east coast of America. Chris Moss was there. They took off from Sugarloaf in Maine, and the idea was to pop up in the jet stream, catch that, and, and whisk them across the Atlantic. Well, like all these things, um, the very first thing that happened was we were on the launch pad, which is a big field, and uh, this bunch of lawyers turned up with their huge, huge folder of stuff uh, for him to sign, and that was his will. The balloon flew at 35,000 feet across to Ireland, but the landing almost killed both Branson and the pilot, Lindstrand. Pear jumped. It was only about a mile and a half away. He jumped without uh, his dry suit on, without any safety aids, and started swimming. Well, Richard got to the door a few seconds later, but the balloon was lighter, so suddenly the balloon was already on the way up. As he looked, it was, do I jump 30? No, it's 40. No, it's 50 feet now. Or do I wait? And so he waited. Um, he wrote Joan and the kids a note and he'd never flown one of these on his own this was a massive, massive balloon that was potentially out of control because he'd lost a series of tanks it was much lighter so he went up into the cloud and waited and of course the balloon then drifted dropped down through the cloud later on and we were very grateful because there was a Royal Navy helicopter uh, out on exercises um, fortunately followed them and saw the balloon touch down again and uh, this time when it touched down it began to fill full of water through the side entrance and uh, Richard was there and he jumped and luckily he put on his dry suit so he was doing the right thing they managed to pick him up and take him to safety luckily um, a small motorboat had found Pear in the water but had he been another half an hour whether he would have survived or not I don't know but anyway we're here <laughs> and, and um, incredibly glad to be alive and uh 
uh, and will live the rest of my life, um, you know, that, that much more fully, knowing, you know, knowing what we've been through and, and knowing, you know, how much I can appreciate life, having known how close I came to losing it. Branson's transatlantic flight led the TV and radio news around the globe and dominated the press. His subsequent balloon escapades, flights to the edge of space and earlier attempt to be the fastest across the Atlantic by boat made him a global figure and virgin a household name. Unlike other global entrepreneurs, he risked his life and seems to need adventures. When he was about four or five, Eve stopped the car and chucked Richard out and said, find your way home, it's over there. I don't think even Richard knows now exactly how far it was, but he put the fear of Christ up him, but it, it brought out some sense of adventure. Branson's mother Eve was a great influence. Here's what he recalls about her. When I was a kid, I had a tendency to criticise. But when I did, my mum would whisk me off to the bathroom to stand in front of the mirror, ten minutes, never less, to think about how criticism is a poor reflection on the one who criticises. Well, Eve was a human dynamo. Her background was that she was a trolley dolly, beautiful, very, very posh, very intelligent. She drove everything. His father, Edward, was a barrister. His grandfather had been a High Court judge. He had this amazing voice that was very difficult to understand unless you were in the dock, I imagine. He spoke very, very deeply and very forcefully, but it was very difficult to understand because his accent was extremely poor. So, you know, and he was very tall, six foot three or four, I would have said. Ted obeyed everything she said. Well, Richard's sisters were like Eve, small versions of Eve. So Richard was kind of in the clutch of these very powerful dominant females. Former Virgin Atlantic marketing boss Chris Moss thinks there's another psychological key to unlocking the Branson approach, his dyslexia. It's really interesting, when you meet other dyslexics, uh, it is like an energy you get from them. Most people think it's a disability, because that's dyslexic, uh, inability to read or, or get the best out of books and things. And um, I suppose I was felt that it was something that was stopping me. When reality, dyslexia is something that actually helps you. It's a gift. And I guess that Richard and I, from a very, very early time, just got on. You know, he, he would say something, I'd add to that, he'd add to it. And so you get this building of connections that aren't obvious, maybe. Um, I believe dyslexics have this ability to join the dots in a different way. And sure enough, after I'd met him and he persuaded me to join, uh, it was just wonderful because here suddenly... I could do grown-up marketing. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Sir Richard Branson. Disrupt Radio. Tune in to Opportunity. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Simon Reynolds. The Business Lounge. From humble beginnings and using very little initial startup capital, he has built one of the greatest travel companies in the world, Flight Centre. Graham Turner, welcome to the Business Lounge. Carolyn Creswell, co-founder of Carmen's Fine Foods, welcome to the Business Lounge. He started Seek with two friends at a time when there were virtually no successful Australian internet companies. Matt, great to have you here. 
in the Business Lounge. Check in with business guru Simon Reynolds in the Business Lounge. Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio. If there is a secret source for anything on Virgin is, yeah, the secret source would be to, to build a product that people love. So if you're in a job that you love, you tell others about it. If you're, you try a service out and it's better than anyone else's, there's a great temptation to share it with others. So we got more business through recommendation and previous good experience than anything else. I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. He was always ever so enthusiastic and not in the least bit serious because he was a hippie, you know, and he was only 18. It's definitely a challenge because the way he thinks is outside the box. Other people would look for reasons not to do things. Richard would look for reasons to do them. Let's give it a go and see what happens. And I have a reasonable number of young entrepreneurs calling me to go, right, how how shall I do this? I'm thinking of starting a business. And the thing I try and impress upon all of them is don't spend forever overthinking it. Just start doing it on on the cheapest basis you possibly can and learn the lessons. Richard Branson is now a global name, a brand in his own right, inextricably linked to Virgin. What's the secret of his success? Is he a great motivator? Rowan Gormley, the former CEO of Virgin Money, the financial services arm of the group, sees it differently. His technique for doing it is not to generate enthusiasm, it's to look for enthusiastic people and then give them the space to either succeed or screw up. And, you know, part of Richard's philosophy is there's no point spending three years doing market research on something. Just get on and try it and look at the numbers and you will know you either have a success or you won't. And if you don't have a success, pay everyone off, pay the creditors, you know, shut it down, be generous so that no one lands up out of pocket or with bad feelings and move on. So when I first arrived there, literally in the first few days, we had a kind of round table and all the Virgin big shots turned up and we were talking about new ideas and everyone was talking about spaceships and supersonic planes and boutique hotels, game reserves, nightclubs, this kind of thing. And in amongst all these glamorous things, I put up my hand and said, um, what about financial services? And everyone laughed except for Richard. And he said, why? And I said, well, no one trusts banks, everyone trusts Virgin. I went, okay, and he gets out his big A4 book, he writes down financial services, Roman. And then at the end of the meeting, he, he sort of goes around the room and he said, All right, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, Rowan, you're going to do financial services. So afterwards, I went to him and I said, well, when you say you're going to do financial services, do you want a, like an analysis of the market? Do you want some market, what, market research? What is it you want? And he said, no, no, let's do financial services. I said, what do you mean, banking or insurance or investment? And he said, well, it's your bloody idea. You do it. (laughs) I said, well, do we have any money? No, no, we don't have any money. And I want 50%. And that was it. So I'd never managed anything. I'd never worked in financial services in my life. But that was the extent of the due diligence before Virgin made the decision to get into it. And that's classic Richard. We've taken over a loss-making bank. We'll turn it into a profitable bank that, that pays considerable taxes um, and I think um, you know in ne- from next year we're going to be start making 
loans to small businesses to get small businesses back on their feet. We'll be starting to make student loans. And we'll get, we'll get out there and help try to kickstart the British economy. It's this willingness to take risks, to jump into a business without always testing the water, that kickstarted the whole Virgin Empire. Richard Branson took a leap into the music business when he had little interest in it personally, but he knew a good opportunity and he had family money to back it up. Richard was sitting in bed with clothes on, a big, a big white woolly jumper, and Monday's sitting on the edge of the bed with a typewriter on her lap and he's blathering. But, and it, but he stopped and welcomed me with a great big smile. But I suggested that a recording studio for young people could fit in with the ideas of the student magazine and, you know, because there's a lot of talent wandering about in the streets and you, you could find the next Bob Dylan or the next uh, Beatles, you know. He said, well, let me think about it. A week or so later, Richard Branson gave the green light for a recording studio, initially to have been in a church crypt, after taking advice on equipment from the Beatles producer George Martin. That fell through, and instead Branson decided to buy a run-down English country pile called The Manor. Tom Newman would run it. In all of his books, he claims to have found The Manor, and I don't mind, but between you and me, my recollection was that I had a meeting with Richard in South Wolf Road about equipment and while I was waiting for him I was looking in the Country Life magazine, saw the manor, mentioned it to Richard and now Richard is renowned for this. He's very good and he's done it to me several times, uh, listening to people's ideas, nicking the idea and then it becomes his idea. I mean every entrepreneur on the planet has done that <laughs> and we drove down to the manor, climbed over the wall and had a look without the estate agents. Then Richard came and said, I'm going to buy the manor. And he, he'd secretly done a deal with his auntie Joyce and got some kind of private mortgage happening. It was 30 grand for 30 acres and a, a 10 bedroom manor house. The manor recording studio would in time attract some of the world's greatest acts. Queen, Van Morrison, Black Sabbath, XTC, Paul Weller, The Stranglers, Radiohead, the list goes on. But it was an expensive place to run, with staff including cooks to pay, and in the early days equipment that kept breaking down. Back in the early 1970s it looked like a venture that might fail. Any, he would hide under the bloody desk in the office to, to, to not see me. And I would tell him, I'm coming to London, I need the wages. I haven't had a wages check for two weeks. I want it now. And he would hide. We had constant Barneys over that. But he would always charmingly duck around it. And, you know, so I could never actually <laughs> get angry enough. Even though I had to drive all the way from Oxford to London on a Friday night. It seemed to be horrible. I used to get angry at the time. But now I look back on it and it, I find it, you know, funny. The most important person to walk through its grade two listed corridors was an unknown teenage guitarist called Michael Oldfield. Without him and his eerie hypnotic music, the Virgin Empire might never have existed. He played Tom his demo and Tom was very taken with it. So Tom was the first guy, I think, that recognised Mike's talent. And he let Mike use the studio when 
whoever was actually paying for it. When they were sleeping, Mike would be called them, OK, you can do a bit of work in the studio now. Because he worked alone, unusually. He kept on coming over. Have you listened to it yet? Yes, I'll, I'll listen to it as soon as I can. And I thought, am I going to punch this little freak out or am I going to... So eventually I, he forced me, after about two days of, of whining in my ear, I went upstairs and listened to it. And I was so taken. Tubular Bells was released in May 1973 and sales were slow. It wasn't until the classic horror movie The Exorcist used it for the soundtrack that sales took off. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter... To date, it has sold over 15 million copies worldwide. Al Clark was head of publicity for Virgin before a distinguished career in movies. There would not have been uh, Virgin Records in the form that it evolved into without a record as sensationally out of nowhere as Tubular Bells, because it just kept selling. Even when our other records were hit and miss, and we had flops during that time and and costs and and records that just covered their costs and um but with that uh foundation it automatically made life different you know we just we knew that for as long as these these records kept going we kept going what was changing was as in all pop culture um was the audience and the people who bought Chival of Bells in 1973 were four years older by 1977 and uh, that you know young demographic that kind of determines the shifting tide of pop music. Tubular Bells had opened up the market in progressive rock to Virgin but times were changing, and by 1976, punk was mercifully blowing away guitar noodling and fancy musicianship. The Sex Pistols had been signed by EMI, then A&M Records, losing both deals in a whirlwind of four-letter words, tabloid outrage and public anger. Have you got a contract? Yes, yeah, Who would sign this bunch of drunken yobs? Well, Branson, of course. Here's Al Clark again. I think Richard in particular felt that this was his first opportunity for a couple of years of actually being a kind of defiant and creative orchestrator of events. I mean, he, they, they were undeniably potent in the bloodstream of youth culture even though they'd only made you know one album that hadn't even been released yet until we released it so i think it was it was a crossroads moment and they came along and in doing so helped to determine which road we were going to head down people wanted to be on the same label as the sex pistols and the prog rock type of artist that we've been signing prior to that wanted to be on the same label as mike oldfield and, and tangerine dream or whatever I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio. When the country's economy is a disaster zone, what's the best strategy for your business? Cut costs? Lay people off? 
In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the UK economy was in the doldrums. Virgin, like many other companies, weathered hard times. But while others in the music industry contracted or went under, their record label did incredibly well. Steve Lewis thinks it was because of the culture Bransell and the team had created. We signed and we broke the Human League Culture Club, Simple Minds, Japan, China Crisis. We were not like other companies. You know, we didn't have guys in suits telling us what to do. We probably could have used some at some points, you know, some grown-ups around. So, but it, it's appealing to artists to do that, to, to work like that, to have that kind of... You know, they, they didn't want to be told about rules. They didn't want to go into a place where they had to sign in and sign out. Whereas we were the audience, we were the market. You know, we were, we were the same sort of age. We were just a bunch of young people that love music. And you can convey that enthusiasm. And it usually lands pretty well if you genuinely, you know. And we did. I mean, we'd sit down with the band and tell them why we liked their music. It was the truth. We weren't being you know, prepped by some young A&R guy. We were those guys. By the mid-1980s, the cash was rolling in from Virgin Records and the Virgin Megastores. Remember them? This was the era of CDs and VHS tapes, piled high in vast shops. When the ever-restless Branson decided to take another leap into the dark and start an airline, Virgin's young, streetwise image worked against them. Chris Moss, former Virgin Atlantic marketing boss. The first few months I was there, there was a, I, I felt a great pressure to maybe change the airline name because uh, we were fighting, in effect, the Virgin Record stores, these mega stores that uh, you'd walk into. Somebody would be in there and it looked as if they hadn't washed for a few days. The records were piled high, piled it high, sell it cheap. And here were we trying to create a quality product. And people wouldn't travel with this because they thought the experience might be bad. I couldn't give anyone... A test flight. I couldn't say we are better than anybody else. I just had to hope that somebody might tell them. And um, more and more, uh, we realised that actually we were competing against Air India and um, Eastern Airlines and many of the other American airlines, Continental, and they could do price much better than we could. Uh, you know, they had some big scale, so we had to be quality and we had to separate ourselves. So that meant rethinking how do we uh, create that rich experience? Could we become an airline that really focused on great in-flight entertainment, great music, um, great experience. And sure enough, you move the values from one record business to an airline, and many of them you can tick off and say, yeah, we can do that. So we ended up rethinking the classes of an airline. So we had economy and we had upper class, which was a business class flight. But there was nothing in between, and there was quite a big pay difference in between. So why not? reconfigure them let's try it out on one aircraft let's buy some second-hand airline seats which we bought from Bcal, recovered them and uh, we called it well it originally i wanted to call it middle class because you've got upper class and you have middle class wouldn't that be great uh, unfortunately the americans hated the idea of being middle class and so we ended up launching mid-class because it was in between in between upper and, and economy and over time the pressure because travel agents didn't really understand it and business passengers wasn't, weren't sure quite what they were going to get. It got pushed into premium economy. But it got copied by all the other airlines, which is a nice compliment. And uh, actually it helped the airlines survive because that one cabin ended up being then two cabins. It ended up uh, business class passengers could travel business class one way and, he, and premium, premium economy the other way. So it really was a saviour for, 
virgin in those days and and stood out because we were the leaders. We were pioneers of a new kind of service across the Atlantic. Virgin Atlantic liked to see itself as a David competing against the Goliaths of the airline industry. It was an image that played well with the public, as well as the politicians and regulators who controlled access to lucrative routes. By 1990, the airline's turnover was £180 million, but its profits were down and they had a liquidity issue. They were desperate for funds. Secretly, Branson decided to sell Virgin Music to keep the airline running, and at the same time, he was lobbying the UK's Conservative government to help take on British Airways. All the best entrepreneurs know how to influence people in high places. Branson is very good at it. And it helped that he could reasonably claim that BA were fighting dirty. In fact, he took BA to court and won when evidence emerged that BA had hacked Virgin's computers and had rung Virgin passengers to get them to change their flights to BA. I was hoping that we'd get a real apology today, that Lord King or Sir Colin Marshall would apologise in a genuine manner and would actually come here and stand and apologise. I hope that their apology is genuine. Branson eventually decided that airlines were where his future lay and he sold Virgin Records to EMI in 1992 for $1 billion. Steve Lewis, a managing director of Virgin Music Publishing, who had built up the music catalogue, which was a huge part of the company's value, had been with Branson for 19 years since he was at school. There was no place for him now EMI ran the business. I remember speaking to Richard on the day that he told everybody that the company was being sold. And I remember we were both pretty emotional. I said to him, it feels like a bereavement, doesn't it? Because it really did. You know, this was something that, you know, at that point I'd been there over 20 years, longer than anyone else probably, I think. And uh, it was incredibly sad, you know, to be saying goodbye to something that was so successful and all these friends I'd made. You know, I was the last guy out. I literally turned the lights out and walked out with a black bin bag with my belongings in it. Everyone else was gone by then. I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Virgin Atlantic is now one of the world's best-known airlines. Pre-COVID, it carried around 5.5 million passengers a year on 45 aircraft. In 1984, they'd started with one plane on one route from London into New Jersey. It's one of many Virgin companies that have expanded and thrived, more or less. Other Virgin-branded enterprises have not been so successful. Ones that fell by the wayside were Virgin Brides, Virgin Cola, Virgin Publishing, Virgin Cars, and indeed the list goes on. In March 2000, Branson was knighted by the future King Charles for services to entrepreneurship. Yet in 2013, he described himself as a tax exile, and some have demanded his knighthood be revoked on the grounds that he ought to pay that tax. After all, he is estimated to be worth around $3 billion. While putting his money into offshore trusts, Sir Richard has always maintained that money is not his motivator. I've never gone into business to make money. Every Virgin product and service has been made into reality to make a positive difference in people's lives. And and by focusing on the happiness of our customers, we've been able to build a successful group of companies. So what's Richard Branson's secret? He didn't finish school, he has no degree, he didn't go to Harvard for an MBA, he didn't even work his way up from the postroom. If you think those are all negatives, then think again, says Rowan Gormley, who is now retired and sailing his yacht around the Pacific on the proceeds of business ventures with Branson. It's a lot like the public image. 
that you know he's a showman uh, and he's an extrovert and you know restless mind constantly wanting to try new things but behind the scenes i think there're also some aspects that really make him what he is and one of them is he is fearless and he once said to me i've never had my instincts educated out of me you know not finishing school and not going to uni and he always thought it was a bit of a disadvantage that business school really encouraged everyone to think in exactly the same ways he just immediately reverted to his instincts and thought like a customer you know he surrounded himself with clever people lots of harvard mbas and that sort of thing but very often richard was the one who had the cut through <laughs> and although he gave you a lot of room to do your own thing he was also very interested in the detail and quite often would come up with ideas which when you first heard them you went oh that's ridiculous that'll never work and then you thought about it and thought oh shit no that really is good so for example when we started virgin wines one of the biggest obstacles is the delivery companies in those days worked 9 to 5 and that's when everyone said so how the hell are you going to deliver to all the people who are at work and richard said we'll just leave it on their doorstep and the first reaction was well that's ridiculous it'll get nicked it turns out it doesn't get nicked that most people who buy wine by the case live in big houses down leafy roads and uh, you can easily leave it on the doorstep and there's really not a problem he was right and you know that probably made the difference between being able to do 99% of deliveries next day versus 70% and that's the kind of thing that an overeducated harvard mba schooled analyst would never countenance because it's just too simple really There is an old saying much beloved by punks, never trust a hippie. You might add never trust a loaded private school hippie who tells you he is on your side. British taxpayers will not forget the billions of their money bung to Branson to subsidize his failing rail franchise, nor the extortion of prices he charged to travel from London to Manchester. His shtick was that he was the antithesis of the big businessman. casual in demeanor, swathed in facial hair and softly spoken. But we are the fools if we ever thought that made him the consumer's friend. Strip away the shtick and all those vain glorious publicity stunts and you are left with a very canny and imaginative businessman whose ability to spot gaps in the market is unrivaled in his home country. But still none of this excuses foisting tubular bells onto a world which had existed perfectly happily without it. I'm Rod Little and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio, tune in to opportunity.